Hello everyone, this is Oscar Dahl, I'm here with Matthew Knudsen, and this is We Like Movies. Matt, how you doing? Happy uh, happy can lineup announcement day. Yeah, what, did, did that happen this morning? <laughs> did I miss this? Yeah. Oh, son. Just this morning. Well, in your defense, you've only been awake for like four or five minutes, so. Yes, that is true. That is true. <laughs> but I'm already firing on all cylinders. Pistons are whirring. <laughs> Uh, is that a thing? What do pistons do? I don't know. Are you the kind of person, are you one of those like Garfield type people who like when you get out of bed, you can't do anything until you've had your first three cups of coffee? Or are you the kind of person who like the minute that your head clears the pillow, you're just like ready to take on the world? Yeah. If I'm awake, I'm I'm ready. I'm out. I'm out the door. Like I will consistently uh, uh, wake up and be showered and gone and on my way to work within 10 minutes of waking up. I'm kind of the same way, and I also try and, like, I try and do the same thing with coffee that I do with booze, where, like, you know, I, I try to really confuse my body and switch it up and, like, try and go a week without drinking coffee and then sometimes, you know, drink coffee three times a day for five days in a row. Like, I I try and never be in a place where, like, oh, my God, I can't have a conversation without having a cup of coffee. Yes. I never want to be beholden to it in that way because what if I end up someplace, you know, in the jungle or out in the middle of the Sahara Desert working on a movie and I never want to be in a position where, like, I couldn't function without coffee. I like coffee as much as the next guy. I even like the taste of it, but I never want to have to need it, you know? Is that your motivation? So theoretical... <laughs> like shooting locations is the is the reason is your main motivation i love it or or you know working in the peace corps i mean i definitely um <laughs> sometimes i'll like buy the really cheap razors from the store just so i can like make sure my face is ready to go in case i end up in the middle of the desert somewhere where i only have access to like a, a buoy knife to shave my face with or whatever yeah <laughs> I don't ever want to get soft, Oscar, is what I'm saying. Okay, okay. I'm with you. I want to be ready when I'm dropped behind enemy lines. Um, all right. You, you got anything uh, notable about this can lineup? Uh, there's a couple of interesting things. Uh, Asghar Farhadi's new film, Everybody Knows, is going to open. Mm-hmm. You're obviously familiar with Mr. Farhadi's work. He's a he's an Iranian luminary filmmaker from a separation and the gift and yeah is that what it was called the gift no it's called the past i i've actually still not seen his latest I, I did love a separation i think it was on both of our top 10 lists a few years back but a separation is kind of a masterpiece uh the past is excellent i wasn't crazy about the salesman although it did win it did win the oscar for foreign film and uh his new film i believe it's i want to say it's i think it's spanish because it stars Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz, and it's called Everybody Knows, and it's going to be the opening night film, which makes a lot of sense. And then they're also going to screen Solo, a Star Wars movie, out of competition. Yes, yes, they are. So they're going to the opposite, the opposite end of the Farhadi extreme, <laughs> and doing something incredibly populist. Yeah, that's an interesting choice. Obviously, the sort of speculation has been that Disney feels confident in this movie, although historically there there have there have been some. Uh, not so amazing populist films that have screened at at, uh, at the festival. I don't know. After that last trailer, the new newest trailer, which I thought was pretty darn good, feeling more and more optimistic about this movie not being a complete disaster. Yeah, I mean, they they screened Mad Max: Fury Road out of competition a couple years ago, right? But then they also did you know Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So you know Mad Max went on to be nominated for Best Picture and stuff, whereas Kingdom of the Crystal Skull might be Steven Spielberg's second or third worst film i mean these i think these guys are not too 
pretentious to be above a certain level of star fucking, right? Like at the end of the day, they do certainly prize their red carpet <laughs> opportunities. Although that being said, you know, it's not like it's not like Solo is bursting with um, star power. You know, Amelia Amelia Clark and Alden Ehrenreich aren't what I would call cinematic A-listers necessarily. How about Woody Goddamn Harrelson is. <laughs> Woody Harrelson. All right, fair enough. Multiple Oscar nominee and Paul Bettany now, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I find it a little bit weird, but I think it, it is interesting that Lucasfilm has like now kind of like starting to dip their toe into this can, you know, starting to build a relationship with Can mm-hmm. from a marketing standpoint, from a PR standpoint. A good move, considering how much bad press has surrounded this film. I, I, I like the trailer. I thought it was fine. I didn't. I mean, I I kind of like the Super Bowl teaser as well. So I've I've always sort of been on board for this movie, but uh, I guess I should maybe be a little bit more reticent about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I just can't get a, I just can't get a I can't get a hold on like what the vibe is going to be with this thing. I can't. I mean, that's the thing I'm most worried about. It's a tone, swashbuckling right? adventure, Matt. Well, I know that's what it is on paper. I just don't know if like that's exactly what they're going to achieve. But yeah. Anyway, we'll I, have the I, entire month of May to talk about that. Indeed. Um, so, so it looks like the highlights here are a new Jean-Luc Godard film. Indeed. Uh, uh, the new David David Robert Mitchell's follow-up to It Follows, uh, which very excited about that. Great trailer. Extremely good trailer, and it looks uh, look we might have a a new uh, exciting filmmaker on our hands with this guy, which is pretty exciting. Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman. Nice. And then uh, there's a film called Cold War by a filmmaker, uh, the Polish filmmaker Paul Paul Lekowski, who made uh, an amazing movie called Ada going on five years ago now a while ago but a phenomenal movie one of the best movies of the last 10 years and uh, another foreign film oscar winner those are the ones that stood out to me not to be not to be all about these sort of like prestige bigger names oh matteo garoni who made uh, gamora he has a film in competition this year cool called Dogman. but i think the most interesting thing to talk about regarding can this year is their continued sort of feud with Netflix mm-hmm. and the fact that they Netflix has basically removed themselves, recused themselves from the competition this year based on the fact that Can uh, has changed their rules. Have you been following this uh, yeah. controversy? Yeah, I'm for it. I'm for these stodgy Frenchmen and French French women uh, yeah, <laughs> shutting shutting down this new wave of uh, of how we view movies, I think it's I think it's good. I think it makes sense. I mean, if you care about cinema and watching movies in the cinema, which all film festivals certainly do, then why not take a preemptive strike against studios bringing it uh, bringing it to TV instead of you know instead of movie theaters? I, I think it's fine. I like it. Yeah, I'm not opposed to it either because I'm definitely a traditionalist. I mean, you know, sometimes I get a little bit conflicted with the whole like Christopher Nolan or Steven Spielberg thing where they're, you know, where they really put their foot down and they're like, you know, movies are meant to be seen on a on, on the big screen. And it's like, yes, guys, I agree. But you're also coming from a real place of privilege when you say things like that, you know, yeah. like you're in the club now so you you can say things like that because you can do things like that whereas up and coming filmmakers kind of for better or for worse need to embrace all options and opportunities the, just to play devil's advocate france's rule is that something can't hit any sort of home platform in uh, for 36 months after playing in theaters so 
Oh wow, that that's, that's three years, right? Yeah. Basically, that's that's the problem now. As France is saying, if it's in the theater, it can't even go to Netflix for three years. And to me, that's a little extreme. Well, hey, I you want I want to talk about twelve months? I'll I'll hear that argument. But thirty six months, I I sort of somewhat understand Netflix's issue with that. Thirty six months in terms of like being free on one of the platforms, or like you can't even rent or buy from what i understand it cannot be available in a home capacity for 36 months after its theatrical run but i'll do a little more research maybe it means that it maybe that's just streaming you know maybe that doesn't include hbo maybe it doesn't include vod but the number i'm looking at right here is 36 months which is and and netflix obviously does day and date that's their rule yeah. So that's clearly a deal, a deal breaker. But from what I understand, France is very stringent about this 36 month rule, which to me seems extreme. I mean, even back in the old days, you know, like back in the the heydays of when HBO was the first place these films would go, I, it still was maybe a year and a half, two years at the most in this country, at least. So 36 months seems extreme to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's usually within two or three or four months now after the theatrical run that these movies are <clears throat> coming to VOD at the very least, right? Which is too short for my, <laughs> in my <laughs> opinion. I think, we, I think we need to find a nice medium. I think six, you know, six months to a year sounds reasonable to me. The fact that, you know, Black Panther is, ba- is going to be in, on iTunes, you know, in about two weeks is bonkers as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, you're right. What do I know? Uh, you know, the problem is that it's the Wild West with all this, with Netflix and everything. Like, we're making this up as we go along. Yeah. So, but we'll see. I mean, this is going to, this is going to deter some some of these more high-profile filmmakers, I think, from entertaining a Netflix deal now. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, if, if Netflix is willing to write a check, they're probably willing to write a number that filmmakers of a certain level can't ignore. But I do think that some of these filmmakers who really are going to want Cannes to be the launching point for their film may bristle a little bit about getting into bed with Netflix now that these rules have passed down. Although that being said, Netflix is still going to have acquisition guys at Cannes who will be picking up stuff that doesn't have distribution yet. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, So something could have played at Cannes that may actually go to Netflix within the next two months you know so because they'll pick it up there and then they'll you know they'll premiere it in june or whatever yeah that brings up a good question what how how can enforce their 36 month rule they can't well i think the idea is that stuff can't come to can if it already has a netflix deal gotcha okay does that make sense so what you're saying is that uh they can screen their movie at Cannes, whoever this is, and then the second after the screening's over, Netflix can sign them to a deal, and then they can put the movie on, you know, on Netflix streaming a week later. Yes, yeah, exactly. So basically, I think the idea is that if you already have a deal with Netflix, you're SOL in terms of premiering at Cannes. But if you don't have a distribution deal yet, you can premiere at Cannes, and then yeah, be on Netflix within the next month. So okay, that's interesting. It's all very messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I'm not an, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. I'm I'm sort of like learning as I go here, as all of us are. So I, I certainly could potentially be backward on a lot of this stuff. I'm 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 looking forward to following Can this year. I think there's some really exciting things going on there in terms of what's going on on this side of the pond right now. Black Panther just passed Titanic this last week to be the third highest gro- highest domestic grocer of all time. Nice. That's not insignificant. No. The Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle passed uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man to become Sony's 
highest grossing, highest domestic grosser of all time. That's so crazy. Of all the movies to to do, I haven't I actually <laughs> haven't even seen seen that movie yet. But goddamn, what a crazy, unexpected left field runaway hit, right? Yeah, that's nuts. Avengers: Infinity War uh, has already sold more advanced tickets than the last seven Marvel movies combined. Wow, that is nuts. I I was going to bring up that it, it did feel like um, there's less of a palpable excitement for this new Avengers movie. But maybe that's just exceedingly anecdotal on my part. <laughs> yeah, it might be the bubble you live in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's the culmination of everything that we've been, been dealing with for a long time now. So Yeah, at this point, the big question is, is it going to be a bigger movie than Black Panther? And uh, to me, the answer is how could it possibly be bigger than black panther i mean regardless of how ravenous people are for it i just have a hard time imagining it doing the kind of you know just being the sort of like cultural phenomenon that black panther has been right yeah the the chances that it becomes both that cultural phenomenon and it is also just like a better movie uh those chances are low you know i i i think we we discussed the the black panther demographic is is theoretically a, a larger funnel than you know the the normal Avengers you know demographic right at this point Avengers is for people who have been sticking with every single Marvel movie basically for a long time and Black Panther was for a larger audience so I I, I do agree with you that I I would be extremely surprised if if Avengers overtook the historic run of Black Panther uh, I agree that being said think about all the new Marvel fans that are interested in that film now they're interested in that world now thanks to black panther yeah, right that's like true. all the people that have been introduced to it thanks to black panther sort of being there and not i mean black panther was the first marvel movie that like my you know my mom saw in the theater for example right sure. so i'm not saying she's clamoring now to see the avengers necessarily but i would say there there is a significant portion of that black panther audience who are now interested in the Avengers who may not have been before. Yeah, I wonder if there's a significant increase after Black Panther in uh, sort of VOD rentals or streams of all the other Marvel movies uh, once people you know found that world and maybe wanted to invest some more time in it. No, that's a good point. I, I, I still don't, I don't see it uh, surpassing Black Panther, but uh, it sure will do well and there, you know, no reason to pick nits over 1.4 billion or 1.6 billion or whatever. <laughs> it's still a lot of money. They're gonna they're gonna make their money. It's all funny money in the in the long run. Um, but yeah, that's. I, I mean, I don't know if people are making a big enough deal about the fact that a record that has held since um, 19, I mean, for 20 years now, right? I mean, Titanic has has had that spot. Well, I guess it, I mean I guess technically Avatar broke it and then and then uh, Star Wars of The Force Awakens broke it. But even so, like it's still it's Titanic has has been in the top 3, let's at least say for 20 years, like basically 20 years this month. So, that's a pretty big deal that it's now officially been unseated domestically. Yeah, I mean inflation, there's more people. I I get it. That's fair. I don't I I get why people aren't uh <laughs> <laughs> going crazy over it but still it's, yeah it's 3d important. 3d 3d ticket prices and and other factors i suppose mm-hmm. not to take anything away from black panther um so i recently saw a movie that i really really liked i might stop short of saying that it was my favorite movie of 2018 thus far what? i don't know it's a better movie than black, black panther necessarily but i gotta say as somebody who has historically recently become kind of a cynic kind of a stick in the mud kind of a you know mid-30s fuddy-dud who keeps his <laughs> arms folded during comedies uh you couldn't have proven I your left. point more by using the word fuddy-dud 
Fuddy daddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I I gotta say, I, I had some old school, you know, rolling in the aisles guffaws going on in this movie. Some lols, if you will, to you know use use one of the kids' terms, <laughs> um, which is actually sort of apropos considering that the movie deals a lot with you know parents trying to understand the way that their children talk and understand what emojis mean and yada yada. Yeah, I went and saw Blockers by myself the other day, and I absolutely fucking loved it. And I can't possibly say any of good things about it and this is the kind of comedy that I have I guess didn't realize that I've been waiting for for a long time so I, I really really recommend you get out and see it this is the uh, this is the neighbors sequel that we were hoping neighbors uh-huh. 2 would be and was not so like that's what I would most equate it to in terms of tone and sort of uh, adorableness and consistency of humor. Okay, that sounds good. So, so it is in that sort of apatovian more improvy than sort of you know, overly scripted type thing. If you if you enjoy the scenes in um, Neighbors where where Seth Rogen and Ike Barinholtz and uh, Rose uh, Byrne are basically just like riffing and making fun of each other and arguing, I mean that's ninety percent of what this movie is. Gotcha. And since I personally found like Neighbors was kind of my introduction to Ike Barinholtz in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and he he's dynamite in this movie. Although they. They choose not to allow him to kind of like dominate, which I think is a really smart thing. They actually kind of like let Leslie Mann really be sort of the star here. Nice. Which is significant because it's the film's directed by a woman. So the fact that you have sort of like this, you know, quote unquote, gross out American Pie Neighbors-ish comedy that's uh, directed by a woman is is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's, it's just to make the Neighbors connection, it's produced by... Seth Rogen and Adam, uh, what's Seth Rogen's writing partner's name? Oh, gosh. Gold, uh, Adam Goldberg. Goldberg. Evan, yeah. Go- e- Evan, Evan, Evan Goldberg. Goldberg, yeah, yeah. There you go. And it was technically written, at least the the writing credits go to two guys, Brian Kehoe and Jim Kehoe, who I presume are brothers. But I have to imagine that this director, Kay Cannon, had a hand in polishing the script, even if she didn't get writing credit for it. She's she's the one who's behind uh, Pitch Perfect and stuff. Gotcha. And I think she has a lot to do with the fact that the movie is kind of really interesting in the way that it's sort of progressive and sex positive or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And um, none of that stuff feels forced. None of, it, none of it feels pandering. It all feels pretty organic. Yeah, it's just, it's just got a really nice sort of heartwarming optimistic tonality to it which i really appreciated so and john cena is proving himself to be next in line to the comedic wrestler throne following in the <laughs> footsteps of dave of the rock and dave, dave bautista i mean this is really becoming kind of a thing not that there isn't a you know a precedent for wrestlers becoming movie stars but uh he's really really goddamn funny i don't know if he's ever going to be the uh, action star that the rock was i think john cena's thing is maybe more comedically inclined which is fine with me those uh I think he's those really wrestlers are good actors it turns out you know that's that's most of their job <laughs> i guess it makes sense yeah i mean they're doing it on a big you know like that's that's what they're doing it's just in a in a physical way inside the ring so i i think he's really funny i like him a lot cool you know hannibal Buress shows up and june diane rayfail show up so you know a lot of you are uh, usual suspects are in the oh uh, Gina Gershon and uh, Gary Cole show up for some reason which okay. is really funny yeah why not I really liked it I recommend it cool I will check it out yeah we, we've been uh, circling that and yeah this is this will make me see it I mean Ready Player One is start, starting to slow down a little bit but I think unfortunately because A Quiet Place is turning out to be such an unexpected juggernaut and with the with Infinity War coming up right around the corner I think unfortunately Blockers is going to get sort of ignored and that's a shame because I, it'd be great if this movie turned out to be a sleeper hit mm-hmm. 
because uh, I think we need more movies like it. But I think it's unfortunately going to get sort of shuffled to the side, and that's a shame. That's why I've been like beating the drum for it so heavily the last week because I really want more comedies like this. Mm-hmm. Speaking of a quiet place, though, that I haven't seen it yet, so there's not. Much, I mean, neither of you, but are you surprised by? the fact that it's becoming kind of this phenomenon was this something that you saw coming were you already on the krasinski train no i I was not you know i this (laughs) the trailer was it was a joke um for a long time i thought i was like this is the dumbest thing this is such a gimmicky uh idea for a movie and then it's like why and and i remember going like why the fuck would emily blunt do this i know her husband's in it but why would she do this and it's like oh directed by john krasinski okay i haven't really kept up with krasinski's i don't know interviews or anything so i i i didn't know if he was a student of film or if he was a someone who has any experience doing this i know this is his first feature but to answer your question i i was not excited for this movie i thought it looked really stupid and i am uh, completely taken aback by both the critical reaction and the yeah the 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 populace uh, going out to see it on mass not to not to correct you but uh, not his first feature oh it's not no i think it's his third actually what what did he direct he directed a movie called brief interviews with hideous oh, men which right. is based on a david foster wallace book and then he directed a tiny little pandering sundance movie called the hollers last year two years ago but you know certainly nothing that really made waves up to this point. wow that movie has charlton copley charlie day richard jenkins anna kendrick well, that's pretty good. Uh, and he, I think he co-wrote a, a *Promised Land*, the Gus Van Sant movie that he did with with Matt Damon. Yes. So he, you know, he's been building his chops. Uh, but this is, you know, he's kind of doing the uh, the Jordan Peele thing here, where a guy who's kind of you know thought of as a TV guy, thought of as kind of a comedy guy, is now breaking out with this. Um, unprecedented horror exercise yeah um good for him it's been described multiple times as Shyamalan-esque right sure good Shyamalan I suppose so yeah everybody I've talked to at this point has nothing but glowing things to say about it so I don't you know if it turns out we both absolutely love it maybe we'll do an emergency review of it but at this point you know I'm gonna try and temper my expectations ever so slightly because it's not really my genre and you know, I want to be ready in case it's not, you know, an absolute masterpiece. But I'd probably go see it this afternoon because, you know, that's what everybody's talking about, I guess. There was three movies that really made waves at South by Southwest uh, last month. And uh, one of them was A Quiet Place. One of them was Blockers. And one of them was Ready Player One, which premiered, uh, had this big gala sort of pr- uh, secret screening, right? Mm-hmm. And all three films came out to extraordinarily positive reactions. Now, the, an argument has been made that those these kinds of movies are perfect for that Austin crowd. Obviously, South by Southwest is going to be way more receptive to genre stuff than can or even Sundance. Um, I mean, it's just it's that kind of town, right? Well, it's that kind of audience mostly. You know, it's just it's there's a lot of just sort of tech people there and, and sort of nerd types. Um, that are especially primed for something like Pretty Player One. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's it's obviously the town that gave birth to um, to the Alamo Draft House, and it's the town that hosts uh, Fantastic Fest in September every year. So uh, South by Southwest is becoming more and more, I guess, sort of hype. You know, its profile is is raising, but uh, but it still is for you know for better or for worse that 
that Texas crowd. And uh, and Ernest Klein, who wrote the source material for Ready Player One, is also an Austin guy. So it all made sense to do it that way. I mean, it really made a lot more sense to do it this way and premiere it there and have the movie roll out in March than it would have to open it against Last Jedi back in December, which was the original plan. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it made a lot of sense. Everybody really seemed to like it. And um, and it rolled out a couple weeks ago. We're late to the party on this, but I do think it's worth us sounding off about it because, uh, you know, it's it's a good movie. Everybody seems to agree it's a good movie. There's no controversy about it whatsoever. Nobody's written anything pieces about it, and we can all go on with our lives, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are... And that's that. We're Close little, the book on Ready Player One. <laughs> we're a little bit late, but just for posterity's sake because of our spielbergian bent to this podcast we must talk about it you know even at his advanced age he doesn't mail it in right he you can tell he's giving all these movies his all claims that this is the third hardest film he's ever had to make after jaws and saving private riot now what what exactly he means by hard Mm-hmm. I'm making little finger finger quotes is open to interpretation, but he says this is the most challenging film he's made after those two, and that, that's that's says a lot coming from a guy who's made 32 movies. Matt, both of us read this book too. Yeah, I figured you probably had. Yeah, and I uh, I did not like the book. What's your major qualm with the book? My major qualm with the book is this: it is it is reference porn. It is um, I, yeah. I've I've long been uh, felt queasy about using references as sort of content as art or whatever you want to say even so much as like you know when people are quoting movies as as punchlines to jokes right it's like well that's not your joke like that's just a thing you can say that you've um anyway like the the book is is you know and south park did a thing on this like whole last year when force awakens came out like member berries like remember remember this remember this remember this like that's not yep that's not like a to me a worthwhile form of creating enjoyable art like it's it's to me it feels extremely unoriginal and there are there are passages in this book that are just absurdly just chock full of unnecessary masturbatory references like the only point is to be like is to make the audience remember stuff and for this guy to be like hey look look how many things i know about uh, about the 80s and 90s and obviously like that's sort of the point of, of of the of the story itself which is why this guy was able to write it and become a success but uh, yeah, I wasn't a fan of the book for that reason. Um, I did think the general idea was pretty solid and fun, and I, you know, in the lead up to Ready Player One's release as a movie, I had, you know, in discussions with people, said, I, you know, I've, I've always thought this could and should be a better movie than it is a book, which most critics seem to agree on, right? Like it seems like that. Even the people who aren't crazy about the movie, anyone who's sort of like familiar with both properties, seems to agree that that the movie's better. Um, like, that seems to be the only consensus opinion on this, right? Like, you know, I mean, people can be like, I hated the movie, hated the book, at least the movie's better than the book, yeah. <laughs> which is obviously a backhanded compliment. But it, I, I think I've yet to listen to a podcast or read a review when someone says, like, I was a huge fan of the book and the movie really couldn't, really couldn't, like, capture that magic. Yeah, I do feel like most people, I mean, enjoy the book, though. I mean, didn't did you enjoy the book? 
think you liked it, right? I enjoyed the book, but it's one of those books where like I had enough issues with it that I definitely needed to sort of like caveat anytime I got into a discussion about it. I completely agree with everything you just said. I've got a lot of issues with I have a lot of issues with just nostalgia nostalgia porn and reference porn in general because I do think it's a little bit of a slippery slope to go down. I do think it is a problem that is worth I mean it's a first world problem, but it's certainly something worth dis- discussing in regards to how we look at art, how we look at pop art, how we look at contemporary culture, you know, looking at where we're going in terms of franchises and sequels and Star Wars. And like, I think that this is a conversation worth having in terms of like what our priorities should be and how we should prioritize original content. Because ultimately, the best thing about the book is that it is a really fun quest narrative with some really original ideas, particularly in how Klein conceptualizes a virtual reality world. Like I think that that there is we we may look back on the book someday as Klein influencing where Oculus Rift or whatever is going to the direction it's going to start going. Like I wouldn't be surprised if someday there are references to which is which is kind of funny in a meta sort of way that there may be nostalgic references to Ready Player One in the virtual reality headset suite that sometime may sit <laughs> on every single one of our desks, right? Yeah. There's so there's such clarity to the way that he explains and lays out the rules of his virtual world that's very very impressive and clearly done by somebody who has you know, somebody who's a, you know, conceptual artist just as much as they are uh, a geek for 80s pop culture. So I really think that the best thing you say about the book is that there is a lot of originality that's like hidden under like layers and layers and layers of this nostalgia porn gobbledygook. And I do try and like put myself, I did try and put myself in a place of reading it. Like don't let yourself get swept away by references to war games, right? I mean, (laughs) try to be, try to be a little more analytical about this because sometimes there is a little bit of that warm, fuzzy blanket feeling you get when you're just like, exactly. It's all about member berries. Like, like, oh yeah, I love war games too. Mm -hmm. Like, oh yeah, I love, you know, I love back to the future and, you read a reference to something that you don't like or you don't think should be championed and all of a sudden it like <laughs> it kind of like kicks you it like wakes you up like oh fuck this book right yeah. like we we love the things that we love and we we can't help but respond to them the problem with something like ready player 1 is it may potentially be an unhealthy amount of love that's sort of disguising maybe a potentially weak property Yes. Does that make sense? Like how much meat is really on that bone and how much of it is just a lot of sugar that the bone has been rolled in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's obviously a pretty darn easy read. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's I mean, it's, it's fun. It's, that's it's the word to use for it. It's really fun. Yeah, and and, and you're right. My, my favorite part about the book was a, a fun little quest narrative and the sort of mystery and the sleuthing um, and the sort of ticking clock nature of, of that whole thing, which is why I thought it's going to be hard to just rattle off references unless they do a really obnoxious voiceover in this movie. So maybe it'll just focus on um, you know, uncovering the mysteries of this virtual reality world. And so you know, I might be one of the rare people, Matt, that I think the movie might be worse than the book, albeit quite slightly. I promised myself that I was not going to just be that guy who would make this entire conversation 
you know, this, that this conversation wouldn't completely consist of me saying, yeah, but in the book they did this. Yeah, but in the book they did this. Yeah, remember in the book when they did this? They didn't do that in the movie. So I'm going to try my hardest not to do that. But I will say that um, I was a little bit taken aback by how many liberties were taken. And I'm not sure that the movie is better than the book, although I will say I actually really liked the movie. I do think that they make some, that there are some deviations and some strange choices of things they decide to omit or directions they decide to go in. But I've also kind of like spent the last couple, because I've seen it three times now, and I've spent the last couple weeks kind of chewing over it and, and realizing how many decisions needed to be made in terms of how to properly visualize a lot of the stuff that just may only really work on the page. Best example that I can come up with at the moment is is something like the um, the War Games thing, right? Everybody's favorite scene from this movie seems to be the Shining uh, sequence, which is the second quest. That's basically a stand-in for the first quest in the book, which is War Games, not the Shining. And I think it it transcends the fact that more people are familiar with The Shining or think that The Shining is a classic than War Games. But the way that the War Games things work of him just like, act, act, you know, going through and reciting every word from it, the way that the quest asks him to play Matthew Broderick's character and recite every word from the film. You just can't you just can't really do that. That only really works on the page. It, it wouldn't work in movie form. And I get it. And The Shining makes a lot more sense in an interactive way, right? Yeah, it it does. I I mean, I know what you're getting at. And I understand. Like, isn't one of the quests also like to beat a game of Pac-Man or whatever? Um, <laughs> sort of. Or or there's also a Monty Python thing, right? Where he has to go through and recite every single word from Monty Python. That that also wouldn't work in this context. So they completely drop that as well. And even though it hurts a little bit, because that is the final quest, right? Like that that precedes that precedes the whole adventure Atari thing. Yeah. Whole Monty Python deal. And you get you get one reference to the holy hand grenade and that's it. That's the that's the beginning and the end of the Monty Python references in this movie. Yeah, I, I would say that it's not even about the quests themselves, it's about getting to them and, and, and the like deciphering and and the false starts and and, and all that stuff. Uh, didn't really occur in the movie. It felt like it felt just it felt way too easy to get to these uh, quests and then to complete them because completing them was basically staying alive. You know, there there wasn't there wasn't a, a lot of depth. They didn't really set the ground rules for each quest. And I thought it'd be a little more strategic, video gamey in, in the movie, but uh, it, it wasn't. I mean, they, they all fell a little a little flat to me, and then maybe that's part of. What I thought was also sort of a lack of uh, character development and not really giving a shit about any of these any of these characters. Then let's just get into talking about the main character, Wade Watts, because I think that there's a major problem going on here in terms of having an extraordinarily weak protagonist in the film, especially when you have so many more interesting characters around him. Yeah. In the book, he's an insufferable character who is extraordinarily obnoxious because he is such a know-it-all, right? And because there are just pages and pages dedicated to him listing off all these things that he knows or cares about. And then there's also extended sequences of him basically like shaming people because they don't know all the things that he knows. Yes. So he's he's obnoxious and he's insufferable. And a lot of times it's very, you just kind of like want to punch the page the problem with the way that they've adapted him to the movie is that they've like rounded off the edges of some of that know-it-all-ism but in doing so they've also kind of like neutered him from being particularly heroic or interesting or smart like you know say what you want to about how insufferable he is in the book at least he is intellectually engaging in these kinds of challenges or or um, riddles in an interesting way that that does prove 
that he deserves to win this contest. Whereas in the book, I feel like, or in, I'm sorry, in the movie, it, it feels like he never really rises to that challenge in, in a way that you can really root for him, right? I don't dislike Ty Sheridan, but I think there is something kind of flat about his portrayal here, right? I mean, in the book, you get a sense that like, oh yeah, he is sort of deserving. He is the chosen one, not the chosen one, but he, he he's he's worked so hard to gain all this knowledge and like this is his thing and he works harder and longer and quicker than everyone else and he, you know he's obnoxious about it but at least he's sort of proactive yeah in this one it does feel like the action's coming to him um, and he's 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 not as yeah n- not as a proactive protagonist as, as as you'd like kind of a wet blanket. That's a good way to put it. That it's all sort of like happening to him. He's much more reactive than proactive in the movie. I think maybe my favorite sequence in the book is when he actually basically turns himself in and gets thrown basically into the indentured servitude. You know the loyalty center or whatever. Yeah. There's a there's a whole extended thing that that where he. He goes in. He gives himself up. He he takes on a false. Uh, he takes on like a false, like an alias or whatever. And then he goes through this whole thing where he basically has to hack the IOI from the inside and work his way back out. It's a really like scary. It's very sort of Orwellian or Terry Gill- Gilliam-ish, if you will. Yeah. It's very much like Brazil, and it really establishes the stakes that if he doesn't, if he can't do this, if he can't hack the system, if he can't fight his way back out then he's basically in jail for the rest of his life yeah and it doesn't rely on his you know pop culture knowledge or whatever kind of like relies on his ingenuity and his bravery completely like establishes why for me dramatically why he should go on to win the whole thing by the end because to me that's the hardest quest in the entire book Mm mm-hmm and the movie completely throws all that out. It puts it puts Artemis, it puts Samantha basically in that situation, but it's much shorter. The stakes are much lower. Yeah. And it's much more kind of like sweaty and forced, I feel, than what was happening in the book. And to me, that's one of the biggest, that's one of the more problematic deviations the movie takes from the book. Yeah. And, and as a result, like not having that sequence makes him so much less heroic. Yeah, and so much less. I just want to. I just don't want to root for him nearly. Whereas in the book, as much as I didn't like him for so much of it, as soon as he broke out and like completed his quest there, I was like, all right, I'm on board. This guy's pretty amazing. Like, I'll root for this guy now. He's proven himself to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I do think uh, that sequence had a lot of potential, and it was just basically Artemis hiding behind a chair and then running out. Right, like there wasn't a whole lot to it. Yeah, I think that is my main problem with the movie. Like, I didn't really care about the characters. The action seems to be happening to them. You know, I didn't see any uh, <laughs> sparks between Wade and 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 Artemis uh, at all. I mean, Olivia Cook seems like a, a nice actress, and I think she probably does what she can with the role. I think she's pretty good. I think she's pretty delightful. I really think she's she's certainly I'm much more magnetic uh, magnetic than he is. Yes, like definitely. I think she's. I think I think she's a big a big movie star in the making and absolutely, you know, delightful and cute. And I, I think she does things through mocap that are much more interesting than, um, than whatever he's doing. Yeah. Like I think she, like her, her personality comes across through the mocap stuff in a way where you're just like, Oh yeah, I can really see the actress behind this CG avatar. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. his is just so generic and so vanilla. And you, I feel like you could, you could switch him out with another actor and I, I wouldn't, notice right again i i appreciate the sort of visual splendor of the movie and you know i i take spielberg's word for it like i i this feels like an extremely hard movie to conceptualize and make given that uh, uh, you know 
half of it, I suppose, maybe more than half of it, takes place in a virtual reality world and how you're going to deal with that and not make it seem like a total, complete CGI fest, right? Like trying to ground it in some sort of tactile reality um, obviously seems like a, a, a difficult task, and Spielberg does the best he can, I think, and I, I'm not sure there's a lot of people who could have done it as well as he did. Um, and I do appreciate that Unlike the book, this movie was not like jam-packed, like wall-to-wall with with references. You know, yeah, I did like the sort of extended Shining piece, and uh, there were some really fun visual moments uh, throughout. But I, again, like I just I felt sort of deflated the whole time because I didn't really care about the characters. The whole reason that I was concerned back when we first saw, I think the first trailer we saw would have been back in like August, July of August of last year, like right after Comic-Con, I want to say. Back when it was still, back when it was still, I think was coming out in December. Um, and I was just, I, by that point I'd read the book and I was just, you know, there was kind of a backlash against the trailer and I was just like, ah, how is this going to work? Like this is, you know, he's, he, he's responsible for so many of the things that this book references. How this is just going to like, my brain's going to explode from all like the meta stuff that's going to be going on in this movie. Is it just going to be a big circle jerk? And that's the thing that concerned me the most. And then when, you know, when the positive responses came out of South by Southwest, I started to, you know, thaw, started to soften a little bit. And by the time I went to go see it the other night, I was actually legitimately excited for it. And even though I had just as many problems with it as I had with the book, if not more, I was definitely pleasantly surprised by how he was able to round off so many of the, the the reference edges and did the really, I think, very humble and smart thing of kind of recusing himself and saying, we're not going to reference any of my stuff. Like, I understand that we got to have the DeLorean in there or whatever because, you know, I just produced that movie, but we're certainly not going to... We're not going to overtly reference any of my own films. And he made that clear to his creative team. And then, of course, they ended up sneaking in gremlins and stuff like that anyway. <laughs> yeah. And there's a Raiders of the Lost Ark poster on on Mark Rylance's wall at one point. And also, uh, there is a copy of Schindler's Ark, the book that Schindler's List was based on, sitting on a sitting on a shelf. Um, but <laughs> other than that, yeah, I'm, I was I was surprised. Like, yeah, this he's definitely making it much more sort of propulsive and much less bogged down by just a, a complete member berries circle jerk i mean of course there's like large sequences where there's just you know nothing but avatars on screen and it is just sort of like that panorama of perception like there's chucky and there's freddy krueger and there's the iron giant and there's the gremlins and there's the battle toads i mean that kind of stuff you know you can't avoid it and it it is kind of fun you know just in a really silly way um and that's fine but at least the entire thing isn't guy you know two characters debating the merits of um you know which episode of Battlestar Galactica was the best, <laughs> or something like that, right? Because there's nothing that that's there's nothing narrative, but like that's not really pushing the narrative forward. Yes, um, and it's not dramatic. You know, it's just it's pure and simple geek nostalgia. So I appreciate the fact that Spielberg realized that and decided not to allow the movie to get sidetracked by that kind of stuff. And the Shining thing, I think, is interesting because originally. Uh, they wanted to make that a. I mean, obviously they jettisoned the whole war games thing early, which is fine. But originally the idea was to make it a Blade Runner sequence. Have you read about this? No. 
That's interesting. Yeah, the the original idea was they go into Blade Runner world because, and we can discuss the implications of this, the movie, this is a Warner Brothers movie, right? They really only have access to Warner Brothers properties, which is why they couldn't do, ultra, you know, why they had to switch out Ultraman for the Iron Giant, for example. So they wanted to do a Blade Runner thing, but when it turned out that they were going to kind of overlap with the Blade Runner 2049 in production, Warner Brothers vetoed this idea because they didn't want to cannibalize. Yeah, makes sense, which I Which I get. So they decided to do The Shining, which is fine, which is especially cool because obviously Spielberg is the world's biggest Stanley Kubrick fan. But it was interesting the way that they sort of like tiptoed around being able to see Jack Nicholson's face uh, or the fact that uh, they ended up injecting a bunch of zombies into it, which Wade even points out at one point that is not actually in The Shining. I mean, <laughs> like, how did you feel with the movie's, the movie's relationship to another movie and how it portrayed it and how it sort of like took the liberty to warp it or... Um, adjust it to its own sort of like narrative needs. So a couple of things. I mean, I think obviously The Shining and, and, and the the hotel are a great like venue for anything VR, right? It just it sort of makes sense because it's just unsettling and striking, and there's space to explore and roam and run and uh, all that good shit. So in that regard, it makes sense. Um, I hear what you're saying and sort of I feel a little bit queasy about it. You know, warping the movie itself and and making it uh, its own thing that's uh, maybe not respectful, I suppose, to uh, you know the Kubrick's vision and film. And for such a uh, meticulous auteur, um, he probably wouldn't uh, enjoy this portrayal of it. Um, <laughs> if but, he was still alive, I'm sure they wouldn't have done it this way. Exactly. Uh, however, I you know I think the ends justify the means here, in that uh, if this makes makes kids or people who had not seen The Shining want to see The Shining, and then they go watch The Shining, then it's uh, it's a net positive. Are are you familiar with the Joseph Kaczynski iSpec virtual reality Shining commercial? There's a lot of words in that sentence. (laughs) Yeah, that was a lot. Uh, No, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that at all. Okay, you know who Joseph Kaczynski is, right? The guy directed Tron Legacy and Oblivion and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, he was like a special effects guy, commercial director, architectural guy. And back when he was doing commercials, he did the spec commercial for um, this uh, non-existent virtual reality headset that he basically did as as a ver- as a uh, visual effects experiment to prove it was like a portfolio builder thing for him, right? So uh, I promise this is going somewhere. So he 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 made this commercial. It was all CG, and basically the conceit was you put on these glasses and you can actually inject yourself into any film of your choice, and then you can explore the world of that film in a VR immersive environment and the film that he chose to explore in this commercial was the shining and basically the commercial is you put on the glasses you click on kubrick you click on shining and then you click on the location you want to look at and all of a sudden the lights go on and you realize you're in the colorado ballroom from the shining uh, in the overlook hotel and you can hear jack nicholson laughing somewhere in the distance you can like look around the room you can look down at the typewriter and see you know all work and no play makes jack a dull boy it's exactly this experience that, that we see in this movie. And this commercial was released in 2003. So hmm. I, I don't know who if if Spielberg's familiar with it. I don't know if his, his or, yeah. special effects guys are familiar. I don't know if Ernest Klein's familiar with it. But you should look it up on YouTube. It's it's crazy how similar it is. I mean, it, it really is this exact same experience. It doesn't go nearly in depth. You don't see any other characters. It's just the room itself. 
uh, and the lighting in the room. But um, go check it out. I, I, it's it's interesting how how much overlap there is. I will check um, it out. Yeah, cool. So anyway, I know we're running a little long here, so we can we can move through this. In terms of like all the characters that are used or the way that they were only able to get Warner Brothers properties or New Line, I, I was kind of hoping that this would end up being a big, crazy Who Framed Roger Rabbit situation where <laughs> Spielberg being attached to this project meant that like, oh, okay, everybody's just going to give, you know, everybody's just basically going to open up the vaults and say, have at it, have whatever you whatever you want. But um, that wasn't really the case. That's not the copyright world we live in nowadays. Were you especially disappointed by the fact that, you know, are you a big Ultraman guy? And were you, <laughs> were I'm not, you disappointed I'm, by the I'm, fact that it I'm was not, the Iron I'm, Giant instead? I'm not. I mean, okay. I, I, think, I think it's pretty clear that I'm, I'm resistant to all these references. I don't really... I didn't. I wasn't clamoring for any particular one, certainly. Um, okay. And so, yeah, I, I wasn't disappointed or excited about uh, about any of them. I mean, the other the other big sequel, of, of course, the big climactic battle scene, which is pretty actually consistent with how it happens in the book, is the big character scene, of course. But then the other big one, uh, which opens the film, which is not in the book, is um, is the big race, which of course is the scene that dominates the trailers, right? And that is one of those sequences where I was just like, you know, I was being that guy who had my arms full. I was like, this isn't in the book. This is silly. Why are we doing this? And then you start to watch the scene and you're just like, oh, God damn, nobody's fucking better at this than Steven Spielberg. Like nobody moves the can even in a C- completely CG world. You're just like, God damn, is he good at spatial geography? And this is really fucking exciting, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was. It, it's a cool race. My only qualm with that whole thing is... You know, they've been doing this every day or twice a day for how how long trying to find this thing? Like, you don't think one person tried to go backwards at one point? Like, it's, that's that's the only thing that bothered me. It's dumb. And it is and it is the biggest problem with how the movie handles the quest is it just, like, complete... It just simplifies them to the point of absurdity. But then again, the movie's still two and a half hours long. So it's just, like, I wrestle a little bit with, like, okay, how, how much do we simplify this in order to make it a feasible running time without completely neutering the thrust of the book? That that one is like way, way too simplified. But I guess it is just the first challenge, so you got to get past it quick, right? I, I agree. It's it's dumb. It's dumb the way that he breaks it, that he solves it. But the race itself, the first time, is pretty eye eye popping. It's a pretty impressive way to open the film. I agree. Yes. So, what did you think about the conscious decision to sort of like move up the nostalgia timeline to include? the 90s and like a little bit of the turn of the century because basically in the book it is overtly explicitly consciously 1980s because um those the because those uh, the guys Ernest Klein is, is Ernest, yeah and Ernest Klein was born in like 1975 so he's like you know 10 10 years old in in 1985 like that is his decade that was Ogden Moore or uh James Halliday's decade uh that's that's conscious whereas the movie, which is coming out, you know, what, seven years after the book came out and wants to widen its audience besides just 37-year-old males, decides to explore a little bit of a wider canvas, right? At one point, she even says what, you know, what was his favorite first-person shooter? And he says uh, GoldenEye for Nintendo 64, which, if my if my nerd numbers are correct, uh, 97, 98, something like that? Yeah, I mean, the movie's 96, right? That's GoldenEye, yeah. Movies, movies, movies 94. Oh, five ninety six. Yeah, so the so the uh, the game's probably ninety eight. Yeah, that makes sense. That's when N six four was big. So yeah. So what did you? Yeah, what do you think about like shifting the timeline or or opening it up a little bit wider? Is that just a way to try to appeal to a bigger audience? Yeah, I I don't think they really cared about uh, 
<laughs> bracketing in the the pop culture references to 80s only i think they they know that 80s is a, a long time ago now especially for the general movie going populace and obviously they want to play up uh to to fans of the book but uh no i was i wasn't bothered by it at uh at all <laughs> again like i i just i just i'm so apathetic to these references you know it just doesn't do anything for me and so i'm not gonna get mad about it either way why do you suppose that certain references are so overtly uh called out or name checked whereas other ones they're very kind of like st- um a little more coy about you know like why why say have a character specifically say, "Hey, look, there's Kaneda's bike from Akira," whereas you know they'll they'll um, they'll have a character recite a spell from Excalibur, but they'll never say that it's from Excalibur, even though that's a much more obscure reference than Akira. Like, what what do you, what do you, why do you suppose why be so blatant about certain references and be so sort of um, coy about other ones? Well, I just think there's only so much room in a movie, you know, with all the dialogue for different references. You know, I, I do I do think they set out to make this a movie full of, you know, visual Easter eggs so people can watch it again and sort of try to find every single tiny little uh, reference you know, in the background or foreground or whatever. The screenplay it wants to shout out certain things for some street cred. They, you know, they, they're like, okay, this is a reference we're proud of, and so we want to you know, explicitly talk it out to the audience. Or they, th- or they're things that they think the audience will be impressed by. Yeah, if the, the deep cuts or whatever. Yeah, or it's just totally random. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and it's just stuff that just gets lost on that cutting room floor. I mean, the movie is not going to be, you know, a, a runaway success. It's probably just going to barely break even. I think at this point it's um, three nights. It's pushing $400 million. It needs to do, I think, 450 to break even. So it'll get there, but this is not going to be a big smash success. Do you think that just the conversation about it, the success of the book, our sort of obsession with properties from our youth, is this going to continue to be a phenomenon slash problem? Are we going to see more kinds of exploratory nostalgia porn, things like this? Or is this only the kind of movie that somebody with Steven Spielberg's juice could really get made? And as a result, we don't have to worry about seeing. I mean, obviously, we're going to see more sort of Stranger Things type things. We even have, I think there's even a show on Netflix now that basically is Stranger Things for the 90s. Oh, yeah. I think it's called Everything Sucks. So are we going to continue to see these kinds of things just because it is such a nice, warm, fuzzy, familiar blanket to be inundated with references to a simpler time when we were a simpler age? Or is this just something that thirty-something types do because of the nature of our relationship with our with pop culture of the '80s or even the '90s? Once uh, a certain age reaches the, uh, you know, they're the main ones making, creating content, if you will, you know, making movies and making TV shows. There's going to be a certain subset that want to glorify their childhoods and environment of their childhoods, and I think that's what we're seeing with stuff like Stranger Things. In terms of just like the more reference porny stuff i i think that will always be there in geek culture um it just mm-hmm. depends on whether the property is is popular enough to make into a big budget movie which this one was right but i i do think in this landscape right now with with so much content being out there so many things streaming so many ways to watch tv shows that we will see the return of older properties, you know, this whole Roseanne thing and Mad About You, and they're thinking about bringing back blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that, 
idea is going to keep coming back because you know it, it's an easy way to stand out among the noise. It's really hard to launch a new property these days, so I think they will keep rebooting and you know bringing back uh, different properties, you know, even if they weren't uh, insanely popular back in the day. The ir- the ironic thing in all of this is that technically Ready Player One is a quote unquote original property, and that it is not part of an existing franchise yeah and for that reason alone is kind of like why i and the fact that i actually did like the movie in spite of myself uh, is why i kind of wish this was going to be a bigger hit i i don't necessarily want more cash grabs at nostalgia porn or whatever but i am interested in more things that are not just overtly marvel or lucasfilm or you know even rampage for example more king kong movies like i am interested in more properties like this that explore you know that are based on original novels or whatever so i'm conflicted about the whole thing because say what you want to about the movie at least it is trying something trying something new like not completely going back to an existing well yeah um so i kind of wish it was going to be a bigger success do you think that we will see a sequel to this uh ernest klein said he's working on it maybe i mean i guess that it'd probably be lower budget and would probably not have steven spielberg at the helm but maybe something a little more inventive and less cg heavy would be uh preferable in in my mind so i wouldn't be totally opposed to it um i you know you wonder if they get the same cast back you know uh I, i think we should shout out you know, I thought Olivia Cook was good, but I thought uh, Mark Rylance was was really good. I thought Ben Mendelsohn is <laughs> is obviously just the go to bad guy these days, but he obviously yeah, likes for good reason. For good reason, he he knows what he's doing, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, we were just discussing this last uh, last night with with uh, my girlfriend. And uh, it just sucks that we know that T.J. Miller is such a bad guy, you know, such a shitty dude, because he's... Because uh, he's so funny he's in so this So goddamn movie. funny, yeah. He's really funny. I mean, I think you can really... I think you can really see who the strongest performers are in the film based on how good they are when they're in the Oasis, right? Like, Ben Mendelsohn, even though his, oa- his avatar is not particularly interesting, which is obviously intentional his character still comes across so strongly every time he's in that avatar. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that's because he's a fucking great actor. Like, he's a phenomenal, like, his his intonation, just, like, the way that he, you know, utilizes his voice. It's also fun and interesting and nuanced, whereas I think poor little Ty Sheridan just kind of gets lost in his avatar. And I think Olivia Cook makes some choices. She's really fun and spunky and interesting and weird and uh, esoteric. T.J. Miller as well. And Lena Waithe, also very, very good. Mm-hmm. Although they don't do a particularly good job of disguising the fact that she's clearly not the gender that she's yeah pur- purporting to be right like that that, that was a I mean, bad... even if you haven't read the book it's and if i mean then again if you've seen the posters as well it's clearly obviously her um <laughs> but yeah mark rylance don't you love the fact that mark rylance is spielberg's muse now and that somebody <laughs> like mark rylance can go from bridge of spies to the bfg to this and then and he's gonna play the pope you know and in, in his next movie i mean not only does the guy have an incredible range, but he just is clearly down for whatever. And it just seems so like, you know, this classically trained Shakespearean actor, probably one of the five greatest living actors 
uh, can basically do a Garth impression <laughs> for an entire movie and just completely hit it out of the park, right? Yeah, he was fantastic. He made some choices, and he was definitely <laughs> definitely did. weird, but not like you know, not like a an actor trying to be a nerd. You know, it was it was it was it was pretty nuanced, all all things considered. Not affectation for affectation's sake, like like you said, choices, but strong, interesting, unexpected, effective choices. In terms of the sequel thing, it just got me thinking. Like, there's the one of the last scenes in the film, which is actually kind of a moving scene in its own way is when you know he says goodbye to to parzival to wade and he and his little his mini me if you will his younger self basically leave the film and they allude to the fact that you know like just because he's in the oasis doesn't necessarily mean that he's dead like maybe he uploaded his consciousness to the oasis or whatever like if there is sequel territory to be explored here they're clearly leaving that door relatively open for that, right? That he could still be a presence in the next film. Yeah, I think so. And or, they, or do we do, or do we not or do we not want to go back to that well? Should we just leave that alone? Oh, I think it'd be something that he. I think Mark Rylance's character would be involved for sure, or at least have him around in some sort of advisory capacity, right? I would actually be surprised if they made a made a sequel. Yeah, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like. I mean, it didn't make a ton of money, and I, I, I don't, I don't, I feel like it'd be just going back to the well. I mean, they'd have to do something different with the story. And I don't really trust Ernest Klein. We'll wrap this up, but how do you feel about where the movie lands? Because it lands in a little bit of a different place than the book. I mean, I think it's important to point out that that uh, Artemis shows up basically halfway. The real Artemis, the real Samantha, the real Olivia Cookface shows up about halfway through the movie because they want her to be a much bigger presence and because they paid to have Olivia Cook there. So they really want yeah. her face there, which I get. In the movie, you don't actually see the real uh, uh, Samantha until the last chapter of the book. That that is that is the prize. The ability to meet her in person is the prize for completing the challenge, right? Yeah. So where the where the movie lands is that they're basically going to shut down the Oasis twice a week or whatever, and the movie says, "Hey, go outside and play because the real world is real. It's the only place you can get a decent burger." Mm-hmm. The movie doesn't really commit to that, right? I mean, you've just watched this amazing spectacle and feast for the eyes, and then it's basically saying, "Hey, go outside and don't get lost and all this stuff." I think that the movie is a little bit confused about exactly what it wants to say Mm -hmm. which is part of it steven spielberg kind of like wrestling with his own legacy or his own place or Mm -hmm. what what he's good at what he's doing here part of the problem with the movie is that it's its message is ultimately a little bit um disingenuous right well it's a it's uh we're gonna close down the oasis twice twice a week so we can make out that's basically the implication at the end of this movie, right? Exactly. And it's also like, yes, you get to make out with Olivia Cook and you're a billionaire now. The rest of us are still living in this horrible dystopia. We don't all get Olivia Cook for our very own. So it's easy for you to say close it down twice a week. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was a little disappointed they didn't end up in like uh, in the woods, in, in the Oregon backwoods like they do in the book. And I, I, I'm a little disappointed that Simon Pegg's character wasn't as involved as he is in the book but i mean i i get why that there's a it would have been a long long road to to get there and you're sort of breaking up the climactic action to to do so but yeah i, I you know I, I i thought it was it was fine it's weird when you see movies like this and you're like uh it just didn't have the depth i wanted from the characters and they left out so much stuff however i wouldn't i wouldn't like to make it longer no i don't i mean it's already two hours and 20 minutes so i would have to really watch it again and parse through like every single scene and if like if if what what's necessary and what's not and what you would you would plug in instead um, and I guarantee you Zach Penn and Ernest Klein and Spielberg you know went through this stuff a million times and came up with what they thought was the best most efficient way to give us the, the you know the most of the essence of the book as they could so yeah I, I don't know the ending I was I was fine with I, I didn't didn't have any crazy qualms where I sort of land is that 
I think it's a flawed book. I think it's a flawed movie. I think there's a lot of issues and problems and things worth parsing and talking about and examining and sort of soul searching about. But I would be a freaking bold faced liar if I if I was to tell you with a straight face that I didn't kind of enjoy this in spite of myself. And we've seen it three get, times it, now. It, damn it. Yeah, well, I'm just so fascinated by it. Like, it's not even just necessarily liking the movie. Do like the movie, but I'm just fascinated by the idea of it and about the conversations surrounding it and about what it, you know, kind of what it means for, you know, cultural examination, pop cultural examination, VR, whatever. So I just, I find the whole thing very fascinating. I feel like it's, I've I've shoehorned it into every conversation I've had over the last two weeks. (laughs) I, I get swept away by it in a way that no old school Spielberg movie has in a long time you know like this is this is head and shoulders above you know kingdom of the crystal skull or bfg or tin tin or the lost world like this is probably the best old school spielberg movie since jurassic park i'd say because mm-hmm. i'm not i don't I'm not i'm not including i'm not including minority Report, you know or war of the worlds i don't consider those old school spielberg movies i'm talking about like old school you know made for a wide audience you know indiana jones et like i'm talking about Basically, I'm saying like Spielberg kids movies, if you will. Gotcha. And to me, this is better than anything he's done in the last 25 years. I'm not saying it makes it a masterpiece. I'm not saying it makes it one of his best. I'm just saying it's more successful as a Spielberg movie in that category than anything he's done in a really long time. It's hard to get over like the story issues I have and sort of the reference porn stuff. Um, and you know, I thought the movie took away the best parts of the book. You know, the 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 quests and the the strategy and the sleuthing and the and the characters. So I you know I might go see it again just to witness the spectacle, but uh, not not my favorite. Fair. All right, Matt. Until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.